0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's certainly great to be back on the air, uh, considering when I was on the air with you guys last, uh, I wasn't 100% sure if I'd probably be able to get back on the air one more time before 2023 ended. But what do you know? Um, luck is on my side, and I am able to uh, be on the air with you guys uh, one more time before uh, the new year embarks upon us. So. I'm going to take advantage of it and uh, make the most out of it all. Why not? Uh, but it, it' hard to believe that uh, tomorrow does mark a new year's Eve for 2023. <clears throat> I don't know where time has gone, but this year has gone by quick. But I think the older we get, um, not only does time itself go by quick, but the years go by quick. Uh, I, I hate to say that, but, but it does um, appear to have some uh, truth and truth behind it. Uh, but, even though we may not be able to control the pace and uh, the speed of time itself, and I have to be reminded of it, but we've just got <clears> to <throat> do everything there is in our power to make the most of the time that we do have. So I know a lot of a lot of you who were uh, listening uh, the other night um, did get a lot of uh, relevant information on what was uh, taking place in the year 1774, especially with uh, Thomas Gage, having arrived onto uh boston's uh, long wharf in the in the middle of may 1774 only for the month after for the um for uh, the coercive acts to go into effect uh, most notably the uh port act or the boston port act which had closed the port of boston uh relocating the capital uh north of boston to uh salem Thousands of people's uh, livelihoods were uh, obviously disrupted. I can't imagine having been alive at that time and knowing that my livelihood was uh, disrupted in the form of work to where I could no longer sell goods to um, reliable clients, you know, clients whom depended upon my goods. And not only um, <clears throat> the money coming into me that uh, could be used as a me- means of providing stuff for my family, um all kinds of essentials you know are now deprived to where my family can't even afford food and you know now there's uh, starvation amongst the masses so so i i can't um imagine what all of that is um what all, what all that would have been like uh, nonetheless but uh but it did happen but uh the other colonies uh the majority of the other colonies obviously with the exception of georgia um Saw the uh, closure of Boston's port as a a grave injustice. So, yes, if I was, uh, say, living in Virginia in 1774, um, I would find the uh, closure of Boston's port as a grave injustice because if Parliament had the authority to shut down the port of Boston, then hey, they could shut down, uh, they could have the uh, power and authority to shut down any other port in uh, colonial America um, without the, uh, direct consent of the colonists. So a lot of, uh, information there from the previous night that, um, yes, I may have mentioned before from other, uh, American Revolutionary War, uh, podcast, uh, topics, but it's still nonetheless an important reminder of, um, what did in fact happen during that time and why, um, people were so fed up, uh, to where delegates, um, from 12 of the 13 colonies, with the exception of Georgia, uh, banded together by meeting in Philadelphia to discuss their concerns, and while, yes, um, declaring independence was not, um, did not happen in the First Continental Congress, um, as we learned, uh, the delegates did agree to a boycott on all British imported and exported goods. So. It is fair to say that the um, delegates in the majority of the colonies are going in the right direction, even though by this point in time, separation from England has not been achieved, or it is still not um, something that many of the uh, moderate delegates um, have in mind. Uh, Those most notably from uh, Pennsylvania, like John Dickinson, uh, John Jay of New York, uh, Edward Rutledge of South Carolina. So, uh, the bottom line is that the moderates they want re- they they don't want to um, go to war. I mean, war really is a last resort. But um, they want to s- find every solution there is possible in terms of uh, re- reconciling with the crown and Parliament. I think a good majority of people would like that, but at the same time, Parliament has to be willing to also make changes on their end as well as um, King George the Third himself. After all, by this point in time, he has considered his subjects um, in North America to be ungrateful subjects, nonetheless. But uh, we have a lot of ground to cover in this um, podcast uh, segment episode. We're going to learn about the um, importance behind, or rather, I should say, we're going to learn about why the dates of May 10th and June 15th of 1775 are important. Uh, We will also learn... um, how soon uh, Nathan Hale takes it upon himself to um, to raise uh, the bar in terms of uh, how he wants to go about getting uh, further involved in this uh, impending crisis, given that it appears to not have any end in sight from a, a militaristic standpoint. So I think it's fair to say we should uh, get the show on the road and be uh, prepared for our first lead-off question to um, M. William Phelps's Nathan Hale, The Life and Death of America's First Spy. What's important about the dates of May 10th and June 15th, 1775? Well, May 10th of 1775 marked the official date where delegates from 12 of the 13 colonies began assembling following the battles of Lexington and Concord from a month earlier on April 19th of 1775. Hence, the Second Continental Congress met. It was interesting that um, at um, the end of the First Continental Congress, when um, when compromises were made, most notably with everyone agreeing to a boycott uh, trade on uh, all British imported and exported goods, the delegates agreed that if Parliament and the Crown did not make changes on their end, and which would have meant uh, repealing the tea, uh, the tax on the tea that came under the uh, infamous uh, Townshend Acts of 1767. Uh, the delegates agreed that if Parliament had not um, take had not addressed the concerns, or I should say, the grievances of the colonists of the colonies, then another Congress would need to follow. And what do you know, folks? Parliament has not, um, obviously listened to the colonies or, or the, um, the voices of the people from the, uh, colonies. And obviously King George III by now has pretty much declared the colonies in a state of open rebellion. If 12 out of the 13, if delegates from 12 of the 13 colonies are meeting to, um, uh, to discuss, um, their, uh, frustrations and, um, disenchantment with, um, Parliament and the Crown, and and then you've got, um, the New England colonies obviously wanting to talk about separating from England. Uh, for King George III, this is, in his eyes, an open, uh, rebellion. You know, he obviously sent Thomas Gage to, um, Massachusetts to, um, to quash the rebellion, but so far nothing has really worked, and as a matter of fact, Thomas Gage's, um, you all certainly learned a great deal about General Thomas Gage from the previous night, but I will be mentioning his name again uh towards the latter part of this uh podcast uh segment episode so um yes may um tenth of seventeen seventy five was when uh delegates uh from twelve of the thirteen colonies began assembling following the battles of Lexington and Concord uh, from a month earlier, hence the Second Continental Congress. As for June 15, 1775, the Second Continental Congress voted to choose George Washington as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. We learned in the prologue how um, John Adams of Massachusetts was the one that introduced this, um, this uh, proposal. He believed that a Virginian should lead the army. Well, for one, Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies. I mean, we all should know by now that Virginia goes all the way in 1775. She goes all the way to present-day Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Kentucky, Tennessee. Virginia is a very, very large state, folks, and even encompasses what we know as present-day West Virginia. So, I think it would be fair to say that even if a uh, separation from England did take place, whom would the other colonies need to turn to for this matter? Virginia, because if they don't turn to Virginia, so much at stake, um, could happen to where given that Virginia being the largest of the 13 colonies, yes, she has a lot to gain, but if she's not careful, she could have a lot to lose. That's why there are, um, it's not just so much moderates in uh, in the other 13 colonies but there are also men um leading uh men in uh, Virginia like most notably Mr. Peyton Randolph who at this time is still a moderate he is uh, advocating he you know he uh, he knows that there have been grievances that have uh, been unjust and unfair but he also knows that um that if Virginia did go forward at this time and declare separation from England there's no guarantee that all the land uh, west of West, and what we know as West Virginia and Ohio, uh, Indiana, there's no guarantee that um, that those uh, frontier borders will be any safer than what the current conditions are. So, so yes, for John Adams to uh, nominate George Washington as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army, it was a very bold move to say the least but it was a it was a good move because a couple days later it was right after the battle of um Bunker Hill which took place on June the 17th of 1775 that the Continental Congress uh did unanimously agree to um to um name George Washington as the commander in chief of the Continental Army uh not long after shots were fired at Lexington and Concord did young Nathan Hale take it upon himself to join the Connecticut Militia Unit, which he did around July of 1775? Uh, Prior to joining uh, a Connecticut Militia Unit, Nathan stayed put in New London, but yet he had friends whom saw up-close action in Boston, and I think this is very well worth uh, mentioning, so hang tight for just a moment. Well, uh, Nathan Hale uh, received a letter from a friend of his uh, being a Yale classmate in uh, Ezra Selden, E-Z-R-A, Ezra. Uh, Ezra Selden um, wrote a, um in-depth letter to Nathan. It wasn't a question, it wasn't so much, oh, Nathan, I miss you, or Nathan, how are you doing? Not that there's nothing wrong with asking someone how they're doing, but in a time of war, Uh, especially in the aftermath of what's happened at Lexington and Concord and knowing that a siege of Boston is taking place at this time, the letter uh, was one that addressed everything that Ezra Selden himself witnessed. So in other words, Ezra's letter to Nathan entailed destruction and death. Destruction meaning, you know, buildings, um, buildings that once stood tall and and proud or in some instances could be reduced to rubble uh, they may no longer be standing or perhaps um, the British have um, yeah the British could have burned those buildings or could have occupied them to where they're no longer in the hands of uh, of people who once owned them and then death you know the the letter entails death in other words, Ezra Selden witnessed up close uh many of his uh, fellow uh rebel uh soldiers uh wounded and not just wounded but in, some, in in some instances killed he um saw i don't know how up close but he obviously saw up close enough to where um those uh rebel uh, troops who were wounded ended up getting taken prisoner by thomas gage's redcoat forces so think about it, you know, just because you get wounded on the battlefield, that doesn't mean that you're spared. I mean, yes, you can, you can certainly hope that one of your fellow comrades who wasn't wounded could, you know, get you out of harm's way, but not everybody was able to, um, make it out of harm's way at, uh, Bunker Hill. So sadly, um, the letter is one that, um, Well, I mean, for one, war is not a game, obviously. But two, Ezra Seldon is trying to um, describe to Nathan the, the, the horrors he saw. And two, that there really is no turning back now. You know, we're at war. Yes, there are people from other colonies who may not want to accept it just yet. But over time, they will and come to their senses that, hey, there is no turning back you're either in or you're not but if you're not then you need to leave now and go go to a haven where um where uh people who want to maintain their loyalties to king and country um can live in uh, so that they so that their presence does not um become a threat to those who want separation from England Ezra Seldon's letter to Nathan also mentioned and this is something else that needs to be that we need to be reminded of. Ezra Selden's letter to Nathan also mentioned uh, challenges behind rebel soldiers getting their hands on essentials. Okay, essentials, that's a vague uh, word, but when you think of essentials, what what might that entail in, in a time of war? How about uh, tents? You know, soldiers need to sleep in in a tent. Um to keep them warm from say um, from uh, cold weather, they also need to be um, they need to have some kind of protection from bugs. Uh, they need to have some something that they that they can live inside of that will keep them warm. You know, I can't imagine sleeping outside with no tent. But we should be reminded of the fact that you know there were no hotels or barracks at that time, so you know if you can get your hands on a tent then you're obviously moving in the right direction well food is another challenge too but um but what do you need to have in order to eat food you need utensils you know think about it, folks there's no such thing as plastic cutlery during this time and there are no grocery stores nearby but you are going to need um utensils for eating purposes Soldiers are coming from all over um, in New England, most notably points south and west. So to the south of Massachusetts, you know, you have Rhode Island, uh, southwest of Massachusetts, you've got uh, Connecticut. And it's probably fair to say to the north, you've got soldiers coming from New Hampshire. This is a challenge. Well, yes, we welcome the soldiers, but the bigger challenge uh based upon what Ezra Seldon's letter contained is that um is that um feeding and an arming an army as an entire unit was the biggest challenge okay so for for every uh say 25 50 soldiers coming in from points A and B in Connecticut points A B Rhode Island and the same for New Hampshire for all these soldiers uh, coming out of state into into Massachusetts, how are we going to, you know, eventually when George Washington arrives, he's going to have to say to himself, okay, how are we going to feed the army with all these people, with all these soldiers who will eventually, eventually arrive, we've got to figure out better logistics, a logistical planning strategy. So it, we forget that uh, feeding and arming an army as an entire unit was a challenge unto itself. A lot of it involved trial and error. Seldon's letter to Nathan inspired uh, young Nathan to embark upon Boston and take up arms with his fellow rebel comrades. So this letter here, folks, really, um, it's powerful, but it's powerful enough to get Nathan to understand, wow, look at the horrors and the uh, reality of warfare that my friends are witnessing in in Massachusetts. Now it's time for me to uh, take a stand and go a bit further and and serve my country in the noblest way possible. Three days after Ezra Seldon's letter had arrived to Nathan, Nathan, believe it or not, received a letter from his uh, Yale classmate, uh, friend Benjamin Talmadge. Talmadge's letter basically urged Nathan to act now and take up arms against the crown. Well, hey, uh, I think it's fair to say that the more letters you get from friends who are already involved, there's a reason why they're uh, sending you this, because they, they want you to be a part of a greater effort. So Nathan is given the role of lieutenant in Colonel Charles Webb's Connecticut 7th Regiment. Benjamin Talmage is also assigned uh, the same uh, rank of lieutenant as well. Okay, folks, so uh, Nathan's letter, I mean, Nathan himself now is really moving up. But did Benjamin Talmadge's letter to Nathan have anything to do with congratulating him on becoming a lieutenant? No. Talmadge's letter focused on how Nathan himself, well, on how Nathan must conduct himself, given he had now become an official member to Washington's army. Okay, so... If you've received a letter on how you must conduct yourself now that you have become an official member to someone's army, this is something you don't take for granted. This is not something that you um, take lightly because now that you have uh, become a part of the army, you are committed. You're not committed short-term. You need to be committed long-term because you don't know how long this conflict's going to last. I mean, we it's already now... In terms from a militaristic standpoint, it's been going on now maybe for probably for about three months, but it's far from over. Talmadge's letter sought to promote guidance and structure given Nathan himself now would be serving the public in a greater capacity. Okay, you're serving the public in a greater capacity. What what does that mean? Well, if you are a lieutenant. You. It would be fair to say, if, if well, if you're a lieutenant, for example, you you are um, commanding um, troops below you, and those troops below you need to look up to you. They need to look up to uh, you as a leader, as someone who uh, is is willing to care enough about their well being, who uh, not only wants what's best for their well being, but um, also should uh, look up to you as someone who. Um, whom can provide structure, whom can um, do just about everything there is diligently to the best of their ability. And it's not just within the Army, but uh, from a greater community standpoint, too, because we do have to be reminded that during this uh, conflict, and, and it's also been sh- proven to be true in other wars, uh, most notably the uh, infamous Civil War from 1861 to 1865, where everyday um, average Joe uh, families, you know, people who lived on farms their lives were changed forever because they not only witnessed war perhaps uh, in terms of fighting in front of them or nearby their homes but their homes ultimately became hospitals to soldiers on both sides of the greater conflict and in this uh, and it did happen even during the American revolutionary war where uh people's homes were uh turned over into uh makeshift hospitals. So so the bottom line is that um, you know it's one thing to um wear your uniform, it's one thing to lead your uh regiment, but at the same time you must um demonstrate good character towards the uh towards the uh, public in a greater capacity, meaning uh people um outside of the uh, army because you know I mean Yes, you could have people who might be loyalists, but you never know when their allegiances might uh shift for the better to where they might decide to become patriots and allow and and go about assisting you if you have not um shown any kind of threat towards them. Uh three days after uh reading Benjamin Talmadge's letter, Nathan went inside the Union uh schoolhouse and wrote via quill pen and paper of asking to be relieved from teaching duties as a higher calling emerged being that of serving in the Continental Army. I know that the Union School wanted someone to be there for more than a year. But of course, uh, in times like these, a greater calling does have to take precedent. And I think it's fair to say that the students whom Nathan has taught, their families understand as w- they understand as well that he um, needs to uh, take up a higher calling. And it's probably fair to say that for the students whom Nathan has taught that they're, that those students have older siblings, older brothers, say just shy of 20, 20 years of age whom are going to um, take up a great cause and, um, and serve in the Continental Army, including other extended family members like you know fathers, uncles, I mean and um and then um gentlemen from uh within the greater uh community of New London as well, so this isn't something that uh, a community can be immune to, but at the same time, Nathan has to take up um a higher call of duty, and that is to serve his country in a time of war, even as there are delegates whom uh from the uh middle colonies. Who You know, being uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, and New York, whom are still advocating for reconciliation. But as I mentioned earlier, and I'll say it here again, there is no going back. And I'll mention more of that here in a bit, but just keep it in mind, there's no going back. Hang tight here for just a moment. I'm sure many of you probably would never have heard of this guy's name. I didn't know about him until having read the book, but uh, here's the question. Who is uh, John Belcher? He is another uh, lieutenant in the Connecticut 7th Regiment, which Nathan himself belonged to. So for John uh, Belcher and Nathan Hale, they are both assigned to establish or set up a brigade in southern Connecticut, along with coordinating a march to Boston. 22 that represents the number of men lieutenant john belcher had enlisted the difficult challenge you know there, there seems like it seems like there are constant challenges with this uh, conflict but that should be an really that should be an automatic uh, given but you know so many challenges you know from say um feeding troops uh, providing them with essentials such as tents and utensils But many troops are going to probably would start... I wouldn't be surprised if one of the first questions asked by the troop, by those whom it had enlisted in this uh, Continental Army, if there was one question that many of them had in mind right away, it was probably the following. Am I going to get paid? And when do I receive a check for my service? Well, you know, it's one thing to get paid, but if you do get paid, what are you going to get paid with? Are you going to get paid like in paper money? Or are you going to get paid in a Spanish, um, what do you call it, in a Spanish uh, silver, um, uh, what do you call it, they are called uh, millets, uh, Spanish um, silver coins. You know, not everyone has access to silver, and if you were paid in silver, Who's not to say that there could be a, that you could be in a fight with other troops, whom didn't get silver, and then if you get paid in paper, is that is the paper itself any any worth of value? It might be something in terms of value today, but it might not be valuable come tomorrow. So you have to wonder. Um, even if I do get paid, how is that going to impact others around me who? didn't get paid, and yet they were promised. So, yeah, these are just, it's a um, never-ending list of uh, challenges in terms of, um, in terms from a greater logistical standpoint that uh, officers are uh, being confronted with. The summer of 1775 saw Nathan spend many of days monitoring New London's coastline, which included training recruits on how to be vigilant for British warships trying to enter into New London. I remember from the last podcast uh, segment that uh, one of the big things that uh, made Nathan um, take a greater stand in terms of joining this, um, in joining the greater war effort, was that he saw government officials um, place um, cannons, you know, um, cannons uh, by placing them, um, by placing them... um, how do I call it, um, outward into the harbor. And by placing them outward into the harbor, that was a sign right there that, hey, look, we have to be uh, prepared to, um, we have to be prepared for, um, for a surprise attack by the enemy. I mean, given that um, this port town is right along the waters of the Atlantic Ocean, we could be surprised at any moment's notice. So by seeing all that, I think it's fair to say that Nathan has done the right thing by spending many of days monitoring the coastline and training recruits on how they can go about being vigilant. Because Nathan's not going to probably, you know, one can't be there forever to monitor um, the uh, coastline. Others have to, you know, take a stand and uh, do their part as well to contribute to this greater effort. Did General Washington um, start sending out consistent orders to uh, commanding officers below him shortly after arriving into Cambridge? He arrived into Cambridge, folks, uh, Washington, that is, uh, right around the very beginning of July 1775. He did learn uh, short sometime, maybe it was just, just shy of a week after um, the Battle of Bunker Hill that he had learned that a battle had taken place, and that um, that there were a lot of uh, casualties on both sides. So coming by the time he arrives into Massachusetts, um, he knows that he's got a lot of challenges up his sleeve. So he was trying to set good examples, given the ultimate objective was one of building a united army where soldiers came from all 13 states versus colonies, uh, to Washington, states represent us, we, ourselves, uh, the colonies. That term might mean more of, in his eyes, I, me, myself. But the National Army would represent, in Washington's mind, a state of us, we, ourselves. Consistent orders represented structure, discipline, good morale, respect for higher authority. All of these ideals are great, knowing that he's now dealing with many soldiers whom have never before participated in a war. If there are soldiers in this uh, ragtag makeshift army, if there are any whom have fought in a war, the last war they would have done so would have been the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. French and Indian War. But many of these uh, soldiers have never participated in a war before, so... This is, he's, Washington knows he's got his work set set out knowing that uh, he's got to form an army and separate boys from men. How many men comprised of the Connecticut uh, 7th Regiment which Nathan Hale was under? It was somewhere just shy of around 100. It's not a bad number, but it's uh, just shy of 100. Nathan, uh, earned the rank of first lieutenant, he was joined by a fellow Yale alum in William Hull. I know that um, I've mentioned William Hull's name on many of occasions, most notably um, when America had to endure a second war of independence from an economical standpoint, um, most being that of the uh, War of 1812. That's where William Hull comes to my mind, but I do have to remind myself that William Hull uh, did participate in the American Revolutionary War, and uh, he graduated from Yale the year before uh, Nathan Hale did, so Hull graduated in 1772. He was um, also a first uh, lieutenant. Along with Hull, Hale, and Colonel Charles Webb, the 7th Connecticut Regiment, comprised of nine commanders, being lieutenants, ensigns, and uh, captains. I also found it interesting that the 7th Connecticut Regiment was made up mostly of merchants, farmers, tailors, tutors, to common men and boys, a.k.a. middling people. I think it's good to know that uh, that this regiment is not confined to just one group of people. But it's fair to say that merchants, farmers, tailors, tutors to the everyday um, common man and boy, uh, middling people being those uh, families who might make about twelve uh, pounds a year in terms of money, they all have something in common, and that is they they want to be um, they want to be um, free from all the um, injustices that they have. been that they have uh, endured from uh cr- from the crown and parliament but they also want to um they, but they don't but there's no going back they don't want to um live under a um they don't want to live be subjected to a king who um is not interested in their well-being they don't want to uh, be subjected to a ruler or an institution of government that um passes legislation without their consent even if it's 3,000 miles across the ocean. So, so yes, it would be fair to say that um, that the um, 7th Connecticut Regiment, for example, given what it's made up of uh, from people of different backgrounds, that they all have a lot in common. Uh, what's unique about September 1st, 1775, involving Nathan? He got promoted to captain of the Connecticut 7th, 7th um of the Connecticut 7th regiment's third company making him second in command under major Jonathan Lattimore. so he got promoted to the captain of Connecticut's 7th regiment's third company so this is a, this is a big deal for him late September of 1770 late September 1775 saw the Connecticut Council of Safety advised Nathan's 3rd Company of the 7th Regiment to be ready to depart New London at any moment. Elisha Bostwick, who was a Continental Army officer uh, who met Nathan in New London, he viewed Nathan as one whom could make his presence known to those above and below within the Continental Army. Those above, meaning senior ranking officers, those uh, below might mean like a, a lower-ranking officer, such as um, a private or a corporal, and just to the everyday um, soldier. Elisha knows that um, Nathan is someone who um, is definitely going to make um, his presence known, whom is going to be a key contributor to this greater conflict. Elisha saw how religious Nathan was, given that he had a Bible with him a great deal, well, in that day and time, it was important to uh, carry your Bible. I'm not saying that it's not now, but we just have to be reminded that in 18th century times, uh, church and state in many of the colonies were uh, bound together. And it would be fair to say that um, if church and state are bound together in, in many of the colonies, that it would be smart for you to have your Bible with you. And by doing so, that might demonstrate to others that you are um, a man or, uh, or a person of uh, deep faith, even in uh, trying times. So one of the reasons why Nathan had the Bible on him a great deal, it had nothing to do with flaunting, but he used the Bible to comfort soldiers, including those whom were ill. In other words, he... Uh, could be found um, reading scripture verses or biblical verses to soldiers including those soldiers whom were ill or and most notably soldiers whom were um, say wounded from Bunker Hill. Given uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts was the ultimate destination for the 7th Connecticut Regiment, where did the group arrive to first come September 23rd of 1775? The third company under the seventh regiment ventured into Johnston, Rhode Island, just west of Providence, where they lodged at a uh, what we would think of as a tavern, but it was called the Benjamin Waterman House. And I mention this because um, where the house was located, um, it was located away from Providence. Providence is, you know, it's a port um, port village uh, town. And if you are in the port village, you know, you might be in the port village, but you never know where the enemy might be within the port village itself. So, the Benjamin Waterman House was a well-known lodging spot for travelers who made their way along the Hartford Turnpike. Well, we have to be reminded, folks, that there are no interstates, there are no secondary roads, but there, there are such things as turnpikes like there are today in terms of roads. So, You know, you make the most out of the roads that uh, are available to you, but uh, at least you know that when you are traveling along a road like the Hartford Turnpike, you do have um, a place uh, to go to in terms of uh, lodging. Lodging outside of a key port city like Providence was a tactical strategy given rebel forces did not want to become sitting ducks for an enemy nearby okay it's one thing to be caught by an enemy or by the enemy, but what would you what would you um, what would have happened to you if you were caught Number one, you would have to surrender number two you probably would have to surrender everything else that you're carrying that might meet that would that would include your weapons being your muskets rifles pistols if you have a cartridge box well, guess what you're going to have to forego that too if you're carrying a um, something that's sensitive, like a sensitive letter or two, <laughs> you you would have to uh turn that over as well. So the bottom line is that yes, you could you could get caught, you know, as the individual, but whatever you're carrying on you, you have to turn that over as well. So you want to be away from the port city because you never know when a uh when the enemy ship is going to make its way into um you never know when enemy ships are going to be right nearby, and when they could um, transport um, their men off the ships and then make their way onto the long onto the wharves out in, in, to where they are uh, more accessible to uh, people in town. So, so this so the best advice would be that if you are a soldier in 1775 and you are venturing into Johnston, Rhode Island, stay there. Stay as far away from um, from the port cities because you never know where the enemy is lurking. What purposes uh, did a meeting house itself serve? I know it might seem like we're getting off track here, but actually folks were not. For one, uh, meeting houses served as a key focal point of a community where the town's residents went about debating or I should say discussing local affairs to conducting church or I should say religious worship uh, prayer and prayer services all right all of that's important but from a militaristic standpoint how could um, a meeting house benefit or or I should say how could a meeting house benefit from a militaristic standpoint well if there is one uh, precious commodity, well, I mean, I think it's fair to say there are a lot of valuable commodities during the Revolutionary War, but if there was one off the top of my head that I could uh, think of, if you're on the side of the uh, Continental Army, it would be that of artillery. Artillery, okay, being uh, cannon, uh, not just the cannons themselves, but um, but everything else that you would need in terms of um, all the other components that... Um, that go into um, not just so much making a cannon, but perhaps assembling a cannon, um, but other um, essentials as well, like weaponry. But um, artillery though was seen as a precious commodity for the Continental Army. General Washington learned early on after arriving to Massachusetts, that meeting houses were the best uh, proper and safe places to store all weaponry, uh, not only just the cannon, or the cannons but how about um muskets rifles pistols even gunpowder if you have access to that why would you want to store all that in a meeting house because it really was the last place that british officials would never determine or expect as um places that would be um that would go about storing such sensitive materials You know, for the British or the greater um, British army, they're going to just see the meeting houses as places where um, people will go to worship, people who would um, go about discussing local affairs, and in in this case by 1775 in New England, how to go about um, protecting ourselves if the enemy tries to um, enter our house improperly. Because think about it, folks. I mean, you know, the British didn't knock on your door politely many of times they would break open your door and start searching your house with without any probable uh cause uh what two concerns did uh captain Nathan Hale what concerns what two concerns did captain Nathan Hale have to contend with the two uh primary concerns that uh Captain Nathan Hale had to contend with uh were the following. They were um money and trouble. I know the word trouble sounds uh, a bit vague. Uh pardon me if I was uh, making a little noise there. My uh cat, God love her, she was uh getting into something that she wasn't wasn't supposed to have gotten into. So if if you were wondering why I was um tapping the table. There was a reason for that, but uh, nonetheless, uh, the two concerns that Nathan Hale had to contend with the most were um, money and trouble, and what I mean by trouble is in the forms of um, unruly behavior to uh, drunkenness. Yes, folks, I think it is fair to say that um, that there were soldiers who um, did not always um, behave properly. As much as I'd like to believe that uh, Everyone uh, whom enlisted in George Washington's army, uh, as much as I'd like to believe that everybody, you know, respected the rules and all that, I have to be reminded of the fact that that was not always the case. So, uh, yes, Cambridge, Massachusetts was the targeted destination, but Nathan's regiment ultimately came to Roxbury, Massachusetts, where they would encamp at uh, once arriving into the town, Nathan constantly observed his uh, soldiers' conduct, but he did have misfortunes in coming upon uh, soldiers below him who unfortunately engaged um, in improper uh, conduct through such actions as gambling and drink, such as gambling and drinking. Uh, one situation involved Nathan seizing cards from the troops okay it was one thing for nathan to seize the cards from the troops but what he did next i thought was even more powerful he chopped them all into pieces in front of the soldiers if that's not powerful enough of a message i don't know what is but nathan hale was making it clear hey look you have a there is a purpose and reason why you're in the army but your purpose of being in the continental army is not to goof off and goofing off does not does not entail gambling it does not entail drinking and washington did impose fines for those who gambled and um engaged in uh, drunkenness i'm not sure what the fine total uh what the fine sum amounts were but but he had them in place. And I know that another rule that he had to um, institute not long after arriving into Cambridge uh, pertained to uh, cleanliness, um, where uh, soldiers would go. You know, soldiers had to go somewhere, folks, to relieve themselves, but Washington made it clear where they were to go and where they were not to go in terms of relieving themselves. But this is just an example, folks, of how... um, of of several issues that Washington and officers below him had to contend with. You know, if you're going to, it's one thing to have a functioning army, but if you're going to have a functioning army, there ha, there has to be a constant set of rules put into play. And if people within the army violate those rules, then consequences have to be uh, doled out. So, um, what happened to what happened prior to sunset come tuesday september twenty sixth seventeen seventy What happened prior to sunset comes tuesday september twenty sixth seventeen seventy five The third company of the seventh regiment arrived into Roxbury where they went about placing their tents along the green fields a k a pastures after arriving into Roxbury. Nathan observed the following morning where roughly 200 men got grouped into into what is called a fishing party. And this has nothing to do with catching fish out of the water. Now, on the other hand, I think it would be fair to say that many of those men do need food. But a fishing party was interpreted as one where a group of... Um, many men, in this case there was up to 200, they spread out, they went about spreading out and searching land for essential provisions for meat, linen, gunpowder, arms, with the intent for buying from merchants as well as seizing items from the British. You know, you can't rely on just one or two people to go uh, canvas the area. You're going to have to have multiple people canvas uh, a particular area so that, you know, if, say one group isn't able to spot something, the other group may have luck. Well, wh- why is the number four and a half important? That was the number of days in which um, it took Nathan Hale's regiment um, to have traveled. They traveled 106 miles. To get to uh, Roxbury, one hundred six miles northeast to Roxbury. Regiments from the north, the south, and the west all came into Roxbury. Everybody wants a piece of the action. The bigger question is: is you know how can we go about lodging these troops? How can we make sure that they get proper um, living, um, you know, living standards in terms of tents. How can we ensure that, you know, how can we make sure that they get um, proper clothing or, you know, utensils for eating purposes? I mean, a never-endless array of uh, questions that have to be answered. Were Continental and British troop forces camped nearby one another uh, around Roxbury? It turns out, folks, they were. This meant that both sides fired volleys, or I should say, exchanges of cannonball firings or shots at one another per irregular intervals and phases. Civilian life, believe it or not, did exist for American soldiers, but only on Sundays when chaplains or ministers arrived into camp and delivered their sermons. So if you had any, any uh, normal civilian life, it was on Sundays when uh, you had your uh, church service. It wasn't at an official church, but the chaplains and the ministers were the ones coming um, directly to where the soldiers were. Now, I know I had mentioned about um, Thomas Gage early on, but we're going to now talk about him again here. What major change took place on the British side come mid-October of 1775? involving uh, British General Thomas Gage. Well, it turns out that he got sent back to England and was replaced by Major General William Howe. One of Gage's main tasks invo- pertained uh, to um, trying to preserve, or I should say restore order in Boston, given how out of control the um, the town was, was, uh, leading up to his arrival, especially with that infamous tea party and then the massacre from three years earlier. You know, Gage, I think he was given at least, what, 2,000 troops to um, to quash the all the uh, chaos and um, uncertainty or just all the uh, violence uh, that was going on there. But even with that presence of an army, it was not enough. Gage had to come to a hard realization that many uh, troops from within the British Army no longer liked being in the Army. Historians know that many British troops uh, fell in love with um, with many of uh, Boston's uh, bachelorettes. So it, it, we should be reminded that not everyone in Boston hated the, the presence of British soldiers, but of course all of that changed in the aftermath of uh, what happened on the night of March 5th of 1770. So yes, one of Gage's main tasks involved trying to preserve or restore order in Boston, as well as making sure the town's ports weren't being used by Massachusetts' peoples to import and export goods. But if there was one thing that Parliament felt that Gage simply had not done enough of, and that was to clamp down on Various uh, organizations whom, in the eyes of Parliament, were responsible for creating so much turmoil, most notably the Sons of Liberty, whom had harassed, including da- damaging homes of Loyalist families, as well as uh, Loyalist governing officials, most notably that of uh, Thomas Hutchinson, whom uh, was uh, repl- whom was sent back um, to England in May of 1774, and that's whom uh, Thomas Gage replaced. Now, uh, Thomas Gage, I think I may have mentioned this from the last podcast uh, segment episode, his wife um, is Margaret Kemble Gage, and she is the daughter of a well-to-do New Jersey businessman and politician, being that of Peter Kemble. And uh, Margaret Kemble Gage's mother was uh, related to uh, the Van Rensselaer's, Van Cortlet's, Van Heusen's, uh, the Skylers. You know, when you think of Van, of, um, Van Rensselaer or uh, the Rensselaers, uh, think of uh, RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Uh, outside of Albany, New York, uh, that was named in honor of Stephen Van Rensselaer, whom was one of New York's wealthiest landowners uh during the um during the 18th century. Uh the the uh, Van Rensselaers, Van Cortlets, uh the Husens, Van Husens, and uh Schuylers, they all married into one another and the in the Livingstons as well. Uh Robert Livingston, whom was on the uh Committee of 5, um he's related to them. The those families had um their estates along the Hudson River uh and they um definitely were of uh, well to do status. So yes, Margaret Kemble Gage's mother's side of the family is uh related to those uh prominent families of, of New York. So how did things uh come apart uh because it was more than just Gage's inability to clamp down on groups like the Sons of Liberty, whom had harassed to, you know, damaging the homes of Loyalist families. Well, historians strongly believe, it based upon circumstantial evidence, that um, Margaret Kemble Gage did, in fact, based upon circumstantial evidence, that she uh, was the one that tipped off um, jo- Dr. Joseph Warren, whom was a key Sons of Liberty figure by advising him of uh, potential British m- movements involving would be seizure of colonists' uh, military stores or facilities in Concord, as well as potential capture of Samuel Adams and John Hancock. Dr. Warren took Margaret Gage's info and put it into play, and put into play a last minute ride by Paul Revere, William Dawes, and Samuel Prescott warning people in and around Boston and outside, warning people in and around Boston as well as outside of Boston, most notably to to towns and villages north of Boston, that the British were in fact coming. You know, yes, we've all been told that Paul Revere just rode, performed some miraculous ride all by himself, saying, oh, the British were coming. Well, that's not necessarily true. Revere had help, and he had a, uh, a solid team of, um, of network riders who rode uh, from other places, north and south and west, getting the word out about the advancement of uh, British troops making their way, because after all, Revere had, had to put into play at the Old North Church. Um, it was uh, with the, um, the church where if two lights came on, that meant two by sea, one meant um, if they came by land. So Paul Revere obviously uh, had a lot of logistical challenges, but I mean, yes, historians like to think of him as the one that did it all, but no, he had help from others from within. So bottom line is Dr. Warren took Margaret Gage's um, advice and put it all into great use to where, um, yes, um, April 19th of 1770, April 19th of 1775, yes, shots were fired the world, as Ralph Waldo Emerson put it. And yes, uh, the British may have appeared to have gotten the upper hand at Lexington, but what they didn't realize was that as they made their way towards Concord to try to capture all of the arms, little did they know that that the vast majority of um, continental um, militiamen were gathered there and basically put up a um, solid fight to where The British had over 100 uh, troops wounded. So uh, all of this, we could say, uh, could be attributed to the fact that Margaret Gage uh, took a stand. And by doing so, that obviously meant that she was willing to risk her own life, not only to uh, look after, say, the Continental Army, but also that of her family, given that her own family had mixed loyalties, but the majority of her family was that of... um, of uh, patriots. However, uh, what unfortunately did happen to Margaret Kemble Gage is that in the summer of 1776, uh, she um, was forced to board a ship with military widows, orphans, and wounded soldiers from the Battle of Bunker Hill in return to England. Thomas Gage eventually joined his wife, but as some historians have noted out, their marriage was never the same after that incident. Thomas Gage was firmly believed that his wife had betrayed him, sold out out, uh, the mother country to rebel forces. Thomas Gage died in 1787. His wife died in 1824 at the age of 90. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this episode, and I look forward to being back on the air with you all next time. Wherever you all may live, have a great New Year.